You're listening to the podcast, So You Want to Be a Writer, with Valerie Koo and Allison Tate. Valerie is an author, journalist, and national director of the Australian Writers' Centre, which is one of the world's leading providers of online and classroom courses for people who want to get published and write with confidence. Alison Tate is a freelance writer, blogger, and author of the best-selling series, The Mapmaker Chronicles. She has more than 20 years' professional writing experience. Each week, they explore the world of writing, publishing, and blogging to bring you news and opportunities, advice on how to succeed in the world of writing, interviews with top writers, and much more. With students enrolling from all over the world, you can find out more about the Australian Writers' Centre at writerscentre.com.au. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 51 of So You Want to Be a Writer. My name's Valerie Koo and I'm here with Alison Tate. How are you, Al? Well, I I guess I'm recovering from the excitement of turning 50, you know, now that we're (laughs) on the slippery slope down the other side. It's not quite as exciting, but um, no, I'm very well. Do you know what I'm doing? I'll tell you what I'm doing. Wait, before you continue on, let me just clarify to everyone Alison isn't actually 50. The podcast turned 50. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I keep doing that to myself, don't I? Making yes. myself sound like I'm aging. Um, no, I'll tell you what I'm doing. And this is my levels of excitement are fairly high because I am waiting this week, mm-hmm. in the next day or so, mm-hmm. for actual copies of book two of the Mapmaker oh, Chronicles, wow. Prisoner of the Black Hawk, awesome. arriving in a box on my front veranda. I love that title. Oh, so do I, but I'm so excited. I love getting actual books. It's It never gets old, Val, yeah, does it? No. no, never gets old. That's That title lends itself so much to a movie. I think it's fantastic. I just think someone should just make a movie out of the whole thing, don't Yes, you? of course. Absolutely. Yeah, me too. I, you know, I watched the last movie in the Harry Potter series again last night and I was just loving the whole I loved watching you know it's an interesting thing when you've read all those books so many times mm. you know I've never I've never seen the last movie oh. so I sat down with Mr. Eight last night and we watched the last movie and um it was so interesting to see what was put in and what was left out and how how things were visualized that you you know don't necessarily visualize and yeah it was it was interesting movie making is a whole different world but anyway that's a dream so let's talk about something else harry potter is just such a thing that's going to stay with everyone forever isn't it i mean it'd be interesting to see what happens in 20 years i remember when the first book i can't remember which book i'm pretty sure it was the first one i decided to read to attempt to read um the latin version really yeah (laughs) why I, I mean, you're really seriously. Why would yes, you do that seriously. to yourself? Yeah. <laughs> because you know, I didn't know you read Latin. Yeah, I studied Latin at school, and um, <laughs> for some reason, I thought, look at oh, you. Yeah, oh, look, I think I'll just try read this whole freaking huge book in Latin. That's hilarious. I, I and started, how far did you get? Yeah, I don't remember the page number, but um, yeah, I did start it, and I got a little bit of a way through. But then I kind of got sick of having because I don't remember all the words. Obviously, you can. Tell quite a good guess because a lot of it stays with you and Latin is very similar to well not similar but you know it's the root of English um uh, so but I got sick of having two books because I had to have the Latin dictionary <laughs> next to me oh, that's in order to read it and I got too stuck in you know is that the infinitive did they conjugate that correctly I'm not sure whether that's right but of course it would have been right what do I know I I'm sorry I'm just sitting here open mouth on a Monday morning it's just you think you know someone and then they bring out the Latin like, seriously does this mean you know what makes me laugh about this the most so when you just there's a bit of background research when magazine designers lay out um 
articles where they're placing pictures but they don't necessarily have the text in there, mm-hmm. they'll often use Latin, lorem, ipsum, dollar. Yes. Does that mean that you could read all that? No, that's made up words. They're not real. <laughs> I thought they were real. <laughs> no, they're not. Real. They're not. Where did they get lorem, ipsum from? You just make it up, made up Latin. It's fake Latin. It's hipster. It's yeah, hipster Latin. It I thought hipster. it was real Latin. No, I don't think so. <laughs> I'm going to have to look that up. Yeah, look it up. Um, but it's not any Latin that, you know, if it is, they're, they're, they're words that are very uncommon you, well, in Latin. Oh, that's hilarious. You knew that it wasn't real Latin and I just assumed that it was. Mm. <laughs> I know, like, it was, yeah, bizarre. At school I used to enter Latin reading competitions. What? <laughs> Like, you know, across the state. I feel like state. I don't know you at all, Valerie. You went across the state reading Latin. Yeah. Was it just you by yourself or were there no, more of there's you? there's whole heaps of kids at the time who were really into reading Latin. We would read, you know, things from Julius Caesar or Cicero or whoever and, you know, just seminal speeches made in ancient days of Rome. Oh, that's hilarious. You're hilarious. I had no idea. I just really surprise. (laughs) I guess it's not something that comes up in conversation, is it? No, and it's not like you can have conversation, conversational Latin with anyone in the world. (laughs) Well, I don't understand why you never told me all all those years ago back at Clio that it wasn't real Latin. (laughs) Just thought everyone knew. I'm so sad about that. I feel I feel duped. I feel duped. (laughs) Anyway, let's move on from Latin. We want to say hello to Velvet. Hello, Velvet. Velvet sent us a great email. Uh, She tweeted us initially and um, she has said that, uh, like I said on Twitter, I used to live in Qatar. I moved there for work in 2011, but in February 2014, went on maternity leave after having my first baby. Since it was often too hot to go outside, I spent many hours trapped inside my one-bedroom apartment. But as soon as your podcast was released, I found a solution. I'd strap the baby into his ergo baby carrier for a sleep, plug in my headphones and pace around my kitchen or the underground car park of my building listening to you guys uh, you oh kept my that's bre- fantastic yeah, i love great. being in an underground car park with you velvet <laughs> she goes on to say you kept my brain ticking and helped me stay connected to the world of writing through your podcast you helped turn a potentially a potentially isolating and frustrating experience into an enjoyable one so thank you well thank you velvet Thank you so much. And, you know, I have to agree with you on the ability of a podcast to just turn the mundane into something way more interesting. So I know I'm really late to the party. Are you ready for this? But I started listening to Serial on the weekend. Oh, my God. (laughs) I know. But, you know, the joy of it is that I can listen to it all at once because that's, you know, that's how I like to do things. I don't want to wait for once a week. So I um, I spent... I, I, I programmed myself yesterday. I did the shopping within an hour and a half and listened to two episodes while I did it. And I was absolutely, I, I think, I don't know what I bought. I have no idea what I bought. I was so absorbed in what I was listening to yeah. that I was, you know, I think I bought tomato soup, you know, which is, I don't think I've bought that in a long time. <laughs> anyway, so, yeah, so podcasts can be really, really um what, you, what transformative, I transfigurative? Know th- I know this, this is a really kind of boring question, but how do you – do you actually put your – do you use your earphones and do you carry your phone around or do you stick it in your handbag? And I, I have this issue with what oh, to right. do with my phone when I'm doing the laundry or whatever. Okay. So, well, yesterday for the shopping experience, I just – I had uh, shorts on with a very good pocket, so I just had the 
uh, the phone in the pocket and the headphones. I put the headphones up under my shirt so that, you know, that doesn't flop around everywhere. And I do that when I'm walking the dog as well. But I also have one of those little, I have just one of those little bags that I carry everywhere with me as a mum so that I can have hands free. That's just like, it's like a pocket (laughs) and I go, everything goes in there all the time. Mm, Okay. Yeah. But generally it's it's just in a pocket. I mean, serious. I have no pockets. This is an issue. Anyway. Well, let's move on. <laughs> maybe, maybe our readers would help. Help Val with her phone crisis, people. What do you do with your phone when you're doing other things? Yeah, I anyway, appreciate your advice. Yes, let's move on. What have we, what's happening in the world of publishing and blogging and writing this week? Ah, oh, cool. Yes, well, I wanted to alert, alert, that's the Latin for alert, <laughs> alert, Laura Ipsum, yes. our um our listeners to a, a hashtag that I feel on Twitter mm-hmm. that I feel like they should be uh, getting across. It's um, hashtag capital M, capital S, W, L, mm-hmm. and it's short for manuscript wish list. And this is why you need to know about this because it's a hashtag that agents use to tweet what they're looking for, what they want, Ooh, what's on their wish list. So if you're looking to shop a a manuscript somewhere, have a little look at what people are actually looking for. So, you know, they range everything from like, I'd like to see more slightly off-kilter literary fiction, not the precious kind or the entitled kind, but the unnerving and weird. How's that? That was all in 140 characters. That's pretty well done. That was Eddie Schneider is looking for that. Um, So... You know, Martha Mahalik is looking for a teen athlete story, tennis, gymnastics, <laughs> figure skating, something that's high pressure, Olympic level. So they're actually seriously telling you what they want to see, what they want to find in the slush pile or in their query letters or whatever. So um, have a look at um, hashtag MSWL, all caps, and have a look and see. You know, if you've got a manuscript to shop, you might as well send it to someone who's looking for it. Yeah, absolutely. That's a great one. I love it. So while that's um, helpful, oh. I've came across I've come across one that's not so helpful, but it's funny, <laughs> and it's called Weird Writer Habits Ranked. <laughs> okay, from nude calisthenics to oh. Apple Core obsessions and earmuffs. So it's just a cute. I will put it in the show notes, but it's a cute uh, infographic on some r- weird writer habits. Uh, for example. While writing the corrections, Jonathan Franzen worked in a soundproof room wearing earplugs, earmuffs and a blindfold to stay focused. Well, all I can say is he would, wouldn't he? Yes, that's just I have weird. nothing more to say on that. Moving on. What else? Fra- um, Kafka, he, to keep his mind fresh, he exercised in the front window naked. <laughs> yeah, that's- that's the best excuse I've heard for that in a long time. <laughs> Just keeping my mind fresh. Yes. Um, and uh, Proust, he rarely ate. And uh, it, his housekeeper said in a memoir, it isn't an exaggeration to say that he ate virtually nothing. Uh, I've never heard of anyone else leaving off two bowls of cafe au lait and two croissants a day. And sometimes only one croissant. Mm. Wow. That's like the opposite of me when I write. I was going to say, how did he think? Yeah, that's nuts. Mm. So, you know. What do you eat when you write? Oh, well, um, 
if I'm really going through an intense period, so the last time I went through a really intense, I mean really intense period where I was literally writing morning, noon and night for, I don't know, maybe four or five weeks, which was my last book, mm. um, I realised that I just didn't have the time to go do grocery shopping, nor did I have the brain space even to do online shopping or time to cook. Mm. So um, this was a tip from uh, Cheryl Lynn, who has that great blog, Business Chic, uh, out of Melbourne. Mm. And um, she told me this once and I thought, oh my God, that's inspired. So I ordered light and easy for five weeks. (laughs) So it comes like in this esky (laughs) and it's fantastic. You just put it in the fridge and you ta- and on Monday you take out this thing that says wet Monday breakfast <laughs> and then at lunch you take out a packet that says Monday lunch and you just open it and you eat it. Wow. It's really good. See, I I I, I you know, as as a busy mum <laughs> with three other people to feed, yeah. I just can't even imagine that kind of world. Yeah. I mean it was really practical highly mm. affordable and mm. um it just worked really well because i didn't have to think about food i just took out i just opened the fridge and took out the packet labeled you know wednesday dinner and that was my wednesday dinner mm. Mm. okay you <laughs> lucky you <laughs> I did i'd like bit, to do that i got a bit sick of it after a month but anyway. yeah i'm sure you did <laughs> and an interesting development this week uh, the publisher of julia gillard's book has retract uh, retracts nick xenophon allegations. So they've basically been forced to retract an allegation against Senator Nick Xenophon, which it now, the publisher now accepts was false. So uh, it's understood that uh, Mr. Xenophon will now seek a personal apology from Julia Gillard, having reached a confidential settlement with the publisher Random House. So, and a retraction and apology will be published as a paid advertisement in the Sydney Morning Herald and The Age. So that's a little bit difficult, awkward. Awkward indeed. And expensive for the publisher. Very. It's interesting that, I mean, you know, like generally speaking, they go over those things with a fine-tooth comb before they publish. So it's surprising that it even got through, really. Yeah, so specifically, it, uh, it, they're saying that it incorrectly states that Mr Xenophon was infamously excluded from university for a period as punishment for stuffing a ballot box full of voting papers he had somehow procured. And uh, it goes on to say, it's understood that Mr Xenophon was not excluded from university and not involved in a ballot rigging incident at Adelaide Uni in the 70s. And it says that Mr Xenophon later revealed details of the incident in the student newspaper when he was its editor. So, yes, a bit of fact-checking gone astray. Mm. Mm. Unusual. But I wanted to bring up a topic this week and get your opinion on it, Al. So this is a little bit of a surprise for you. Oh, great. um, (laughs) I love a good surprise. You know that. Yes, and it is on the topic of internships because I know from time to time the internet goes crazy uh, um, with with discussion on whether – Paid in, whether internships should be paid or whether internships is slave labour or whether internships is, you know, good, bad, ugly or whatever. And um, this popped into my head this morning because – actually, I don't know why because um, – <laughs> Random thought. A random thought because – no, that's right. Because we actually – at the Australian Writers' Centre, get lots of um, inquiries from aspiring, you know, writing students who want to do an internship with us. And um, we don't have a particular internship program, even though I'm personally open to mentoring 
keen young students who want to learn more about the craft of writing. However, I am reticent to do so because of, um, A, a lot of people can accuse you of uh, slave labour and Mm. people might then say, hey, well, why don't you just pay them? And it's like, well, we don't have the budget to pay them and I'm I'm not even looking for interns. So Mm. it's not like I've asked for anyone to come and do an internship here. So I would like your thoughts. Right. Well, mm. nothing like a lovely, big, juicy question on a Monday morning, Val. Thanks yes, for that. You're welcome. Um, look, I think it's one of those things where it it very much depends on the culture around the internship. Like a lot of, um, depending on where where the internship can be, a lot of the time they're just churning through interns every six months with no real career trajectory. There's no real suggestion that there's going to be a job at the end of it, mm. in which case you are essentially taking on people for what? just to, to open your letters and to basically, um, you know, take the position of someone who you should be paying. Mm. And there is culture that you do see that in a lot of, um, I mean, you know, like you, uh, the, the places you mostly read about it being complained about is in law firms and places like that. Mm. Um, there were obviously, when we were working in magazines, there were um, always interns there, mostly in the yes. fashion cupboard. Fashion, yes. fashion was most definitely the place where everybody wanted to be. Yes. Um, most of the girls that I know that did those internships have gone on to do amazing things. Yeah, like absolutely. the ones um, they were all, and because they only gave one or two at a time, mm. the girls that they gave them to were always just, you know, stand out, just stand out, like mm. really quite amazing. And they've gone on to prove that because they've all gone on to be editors in New York and they've gone on to be, you know, all sorts of different things absolutely. that they've done. Um, so the value of them can be that they, they get you in, they show you the ropes, you learn an enormous amount that you would not learn in a, in a classroom. Mm. And if there is a play, if there is some kind of um, actual program in place where there is the possibility of a job for you at the end of it, then I think an internship can be incredibly valuable. Mm. Um, if, if it's a, you know, earn and churn kind of thing where people are going in for six months and there's nothing, you and mean no, no one financial? Well, no, in the sense that there's no, not only no, oh, no financial job, gain, but there's but there's not even the not even going to be a position, and you can see that because they just turn them over every six months with yes. no one going anywhere. Yeah. Um, then I think that they need to be questioned. So what are your thoughts on, you know, because we're talking about younger people here, people who might be at university or, mm-hmm. you know, what are your thoughts on, you know, like a 30-year-old or a 35-year-old, so someone older, obviously, who is interested in transitioning careers uh, doing that kind of thing? Oh, it gets really difficult at that point because, you know, generally speaking, if you're older like that, you're going to have some responsibilities of some kind. Mm. Most of them are younger. I mean, and it is fair to say that most of the people I know that have done internships were, you know, living at home, you know, they were not... Um, not trying to support themselves really yes. in any way. Um, they were sort of uni students who were doing it one day a week or something and living at home. Mm. Um, I think it would be an incredibly difficult path to try to take if you were um, responsible for a family or for a mortgage or anything like Although that. Although remember that internships don't have to be one day a week over six months. They could be a one or two week block. Oh, if it's a one or two week block, I'd say yes, do it. Mm. I would because I think that you, you can't – the value of – hands-on experience can't you just can't underestimate it if if nothing else it gives you a complete and utter insight into 
what the job is and do you actually really want to do it? Yeah, because sometimes absolutely. people have a very, very different idea of what a job is to what it actually is. Yeah. Um, so it's worth, you know, from that perspective, if, if it's a week or two and you can do it as a, you know, in holidays or something like that, um, it's a very, very difficult thing to take on if you're doing one day a week or two yeah. days a week over six months when you're older, I think. And if anyone's thinking of doing that, one thing that I would suggest, particularly if you're older and you're not, you know, at university age, is to make it clear at, on your application or when you dis, when you are talking about the possibility of an internship what your age is because you will be given a higher level of responsibility and you'll get a better experience. And I think also if you go through the normal channels you may, and you don't make it clear what your age is, you may be lumped with the work experience girl which is mm-hmm. what you do not want to do because then no. you are just opening letters. And I know somebody who's done that. She didn't make it clear what her age is and she was over 30. She ended up being lumped in with the work experience girls, which was a very bad experience for her. Mm-hmm. But I also know people who do make it clear they've had all this life experience and then they end up with some, you know, pretty fantastic responsibilities. I mean, I know I did and I, I even did one, gosh, I think I was 30 at the time and I was already deputy editor of Cleo, but I decided I wanted to experience what it was like to work in a script department of a TV show. And so I um, asked for an internship, even at that age, at uh, Water Rats. Oh, there you <laughs> go. Channel 9, because I, I thought, you know, that's my favourite TV show, why not? <laughs> <laughs> so how long were you there for? A week. So it was just a week, one week block. Um, And it was fantastic experience, apart from being really interesting. I guess what I realised, and it was so invaluable for this point of view, was that even though I was already really experienced in the magazine world, I wasn't experienced in working with a script department of a TV show. So what I learned from that is I preferred the magazine world. Yeah, and I I think that that sometimes is... um is what you what you need to do. Like I've been, I've, I've had people sort of say to me, "Oh, you know, can I shadow you for a couple of days?" And I'm like, "What? You want to come and sit in my study and watch me write? Because yeah, yeah. that's pretty much what I do. Like yeah. it's really not that interesting." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also, I think that um, following on then the water rats story, I I didn't make it clear to them I was a deputy editor at uh, um, at, at Cleo at the time because I think that they would have had a number of preconceived notions about I just wanted to go in and absorb. So that piece of information came out later and they were really surprised at that. But I think that that stood me in better stead actually because I didn't want them to kind of think, oh, my God, she's already really experienced. We don't want her as an intern. I just wanted to get in there and be yeah, an intern. Yeah, and see what, see what was what. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, interesting. interesting. So, yes, I, I'm still torn myself as uh, somebody who is often asked whether people can intern with us um, about whether to do it or not because of the ramifications, to be honest. Yeah, and it, but it's interesting that so many people do want to do it. Like, I mean, I think a lot of people um, understand the value of, I mean, you know, I guess it's one of those things of, okay, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm willing to come in and, mm. and have a go and, and learn about it and, and, you know, do what I can. I don't, you know, what am I, what, like, if you have no idea what you're doing, why am I paying you? Like, it's a, it's a difficult, oh, yeah. such, and I think, and I think you're right in some ways to avoid it because it is such an incredibly grey area. Yeah. Mm. Anyway, uh, but having said that, if you want to intern, I honestly believe it's never too late and you're never too old. So mm. have a go. Have a go. 
So I came across a really cute blog um, this week, uh, and it's actually called Rodia Drive, and it's by the notebook makers Rodia. Oh, yeah. I don't even know how you pronounce it, but probably like Rodia. They're and beautiful notebooks. Beautiful notebooks. Beautiful. They're kind of like, you know, an equivalent of moleskin. Um, and it's just this great blog, and I can tell I'm going to get addicted about using notebooks because I'm obsessed with notebooks mm. and different ways of using notebooks. And do you have a preferred notebook or type of notebook, you know, like moleskin or Rodia or whatever? I'm an absolute notebook agnostic whore. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm a notebook whore. I love them and, I, and I, I'm not brand loyal in any way, shape or form. I just, you know, if, if something sort of um, takes my eye, I just, I pick it up on the spot. Like that's how undiscerning I am. I'm just like, I'm buying notebooks constantly. And I, um, so yeah, like I'm happy to have a one night stand with a notebook. I'm more than happy with that. I, I have so many of them. Yeah. I don't use them that much because I I don't like to I don't like to use them. I like I to know. have them. You like I the like blank to have pages. them. I do. I, I do. Know. I like I blank it. pages. <laughs> and there's so, some of them are so beautiful that you kind of feel like because if you use it, then you don't have it anymore. I know. It's all gone. Yes. So I don't know. Like it's a it's a horrible quandary. It's a terrible business. Um, do you use yours? I have so many blank notebooks. It's insane. I know. Uh, yeah, I, I can't even go to office works and not come out with a notebook, or a news agent, and, or a two dollar shop and not come out with a with a notebook. It's it's a thing. I know. Um, I have a, yeah, but it's. Oh, I was going to say something very interesting. Oh, there you go. I have a Pinterest board called Notebooks of Note oh, that yeah. I add to regularly and I also run I, I put notebooks of note on my Facebook page on a regular basis that's how much I like them yeah, just yeah. and they make my mouth water like I, I, know. Them, I want you even though you are in Jap- in Japan and I can't even read <laughs> I can't even read the shopping information I still want you so do you have to finish all the pages of a notebook before you start a new one no no. no, because then I would use them all up. No, I, I, I have them randomly around the place and I do, I do use them. If I, if I go to a, um, if I go to a workshop or I go to, if I go somewhere and I, I want to like take notes that I want to keep, mm. then I'll take a notebook with me. I've got some beautiful grey, medium-sized moleskin um, notebooks that I got for Christmas mm. and they're so beautiful and I look at them every day and I think I really should do something with you but yeah. I don't want to you nothing seems special enough to I go know. that's the problem I know nothing seems special. <clears throat> this uh, blog has a blog post um, and it's called the art of journaling do you keep a reading journal I thought that was really interesting specifically about a reading journal as in when you're reading your books you're actually noting down the, your observations or the things that the thoughts that it's provoked or um, you know just your reactions to whatever you're reading or any notes that you want to take for whatever reason and I thought that was interesting because um, do you keep any kind of do you take notes as you read no no not at all never mm. never I know that's interesting. I feel like I'm missing out now. Well, what I do because I, I certainly am the sort that wants to keep the book pristine and I don't want to write in the book. However, ever since I got my Kindle, what I do do though is highlight passages that I think that have made an impact on me, um, and uh, and sometimes I will write notes on them. So I haven't done it on paper, but I have done it on my Kindle, and um, it's it's interesting. I actually want to experiment with doing more of that this year. 
okay. just to see whether it. Well, can you report that later I and let will. us know how you go? I, I just. As a note, though, I would like to say that on this blog that you have put the link for, the Rodia blog, there is a travel sketchbook. Oh, yes. That is so beautiful. And I think mm. that's the thing I wish I could draw because I would love to be able to do pictures and little words and mm. I'd love the, those art journals. I, I um, also have a yes. Pinterest board for art journals because they are so beautiful. People beautiful. are so clever yeah. and so creative. And mine look like chicken scratchings because, you know, all it is is my terrible handwriting all over the place. And you kind of think, oh, see, I, I don't want to upset the pristine pages with such terrible, terrible things. Yeah. Well, speaking of sketching, we have who is our writer in residence this week? Our writer in residence this week is Judith Russell, and she is a an author of children's books. She is also a presenter at the Australian Writers Centre, of course, but she's also an illustrator. She's so clever. She mm. has, does the most beautiful illustrations, and we. Um, were talking about her new novel, which is called Withering by Sea, mm. and it's been uh, listed, uh, shortlisted for a 2015 Indie Award, so the indie bookstores have voted it one of the best books of the year. Um, so we had a terrific chat about that and how to, how to write picture books and how to write children's novels and um, all sorts of different things. So it's a really interesting interview and I hope you enjoy it. Judith Russell has been writing and illustrating children's books for more than 12 years and has written 11 books, working on number 12, and illustrated more than 80. She teaches the Writing Picture Books course for the Australian Writers' Centre in Melbourne, and her latest book, a junior novel called Withering by Sea, was recently shortlisted for the 2015 Indie Book Awards. So, hi Judith and welcome. Hi, thank you. <laughs> um, okay, so firstly, tell us a little bit about yourself. Have you always been a writer and illustrator of children's books? Uh, no, I'm one of these people who has changed careers a little bit. I used to actually work for CSIRO as a scientist. Oh. I studied science out of school and I did that for a bunch of years and then I worked for a cotton spinning company as a product development officer, believe it or not. I like oh. to think I'm the children's illustrator in Australia who knows the most about early stage fibre processing. <laughs> I'm sure you are. <laughs> so how did you go from... Early stage fiber processing to um, writing and illustrating children's books. Oh well, I've always there's mainly the illustrating. I started off as an illustrator. I've always enjoyed drawing, and I've always done a little bit of illustration on the side. And so, when uh, work was becoming a little bit <laughs> hard to hard to cope with, at one stage I thought I'd just take a break and do some illustrating for a while and come back to it. I always planned to come back to work, but. I was just very lucky and I really like working from home. I love drawing pictures and I got a bunch of work straight up, which was just really lucky. And so I basically never went back to work. Lucky you. <laughs> did, you have a, had you, did you have a portfolio? Like how, did you, how do you start being a children's book illustrator? Like do you just launch yourself? Um, it's funny, isn't it, how different people start? I, I often suggest for illustrators, and this might be the same for writers, is sometimes it's useful to think of the thing you do other than illustrating, that might help make a start. For me, our family are very into music, and my first jobs were with Alan's Music, oh, right. who produced music books like How to Play the Recorder or whatever. And um, I illustrated a bunch of them. Um, sort of coming in with my extra music knowledge was helpful. Right, okay, well, that's interesting. So you came in first with pictures. Why yep. did you then start writing your own books rather than illustrating other people's? I did a few books which were Mays books, they're very elaborate artwork, 
and someone writes the story and the illustrator draws the pictures. But because in a maze book, the story is really slight and the pictures are really elaborate, you do do those and you think, I could write those words. Right. And then I could be in charge, you know. (laughs) And is that part of why you started? You wanted to be in charge? I think it was just that they looked easy in that case. And they, they actually are. I mean, maze books are actually quite easy to write. They don't have very many words and they don't have much of a story. And so, yeah, I started off writing maze and puzzle books. And then I did a course um, uh, with Hazel Edwards, who wrote oh, right. The Hippopotamus on yep. the Roof Eating Cake, yep. um, about writing. It gave me a little bit of confidence. And I wrote um, a, a junior novel. Well, All right, so you, course, yeah. you went into a junior novel after doing the course rather than sort of going to another picture book with yeah, a more right. complicated story. Oh, okay. And why yeah. did you do that? Like, why did you branch out into that? I, I had an editor once who said that everyone has an age group they write the best for. And I think for me, I really like writing for that age, sort of 8 to 12, the sort of classic age of children's books. And why is that? What, what is it you like about that age group? I think I enjoy the humour, I think. And I like, you can write quite an elaborate story. It can be quite complicated. They're good readers at that age. Yeah. Um, I think there's just something about that length of book too. You can really, you know, do you remember that feeling from when you're little and you can really lose yourself in a book? Yeah. I think that's the kind of thing I want to, you know, experience. So they average out at about the 50,000 word mark, the the books yeah, that you're the writing. shortest ones I've written are thirty thousand, and my most recent one was fifty. Okay, so did you ever have you ever considered writing for adults, or has it always been children's books that interested you? I've never really considered writing for adults. No. Okay, and no. so because, <laughs> like, what is it about children's books that you love? Is it just the fact that you can write a full adventure and lose you like a, a very much a story? Is that what it is? I think it's the story thing. Some people think writing for kids is uh, restrictive, but I actually find it the opposite. It's, it seems to me you have a wider range of things you can write about than for adults, because if you want to write the story about the harrowing reality of terrible life, you can certainly do that for a kid's book. But you can also write the story about the dinosaur who wanted to do ballet. <laughs> you can have a dragon appear if you want. You know, it, you have an enormous range of things you can write about. I enjoy that. Okay. You can sort of create a world and... Send, send off your little characters to have their... Have their adventure. Yeah. So how does your writing process work? Like if you, mm. like, uh, let's, well, let's talk about Withering by Sea because that's your most recent completed work. What, what you know, how, how, did, how does it come about? What happens there? Where, where did the idea come from? And then how did it go from idea to complete book? I've always been a bit obsessed with Victoriana. Mm-hmm. I love the era. I've read heaps of books, like a sort of mad woman. And if I go to a museum or something, it's always a Victorian bit that attracts my attention. And so I had this idea of writing, you know, a proper Victorian sort of melodrama. And so that was my first idea. I read a heap of history books. So I know lots of facts. (laughs) And then um, I guess I'm not a very good planner. So I start with the first scene and then think what could happen next. What could happen next? So I just sort of get plugging away at it till I get to the end. Yeah. And then, and that's really hard. It feels like a very hard process to me. And then when I get to the end, I've got this complete thing and I can start structuring it properly and fiddling around with it. And Yeah, it's, it's quite a long process, actually. Oh, so how long does it take you to get a first draft together? 
Well, I've never tried to do it as a full-time job because I've always been illustrating and writing on the side. Right. The first one took some years. Okay. <laughs> so now I'm writing the second one and I'm working full-time on it. It'd be interesting to see if it's quicker. I really hope so. Okay. <laughs> really hope. So you're currently working on the first draft of, of the second Withering by Sea book? That's right. Okay, fine. So um, when you uh, go back and you sort of like working with the first draft, do you, does it change a lot? Do you find um, that that first scene that you wrote remains to be the first scene or do you find that things change? Because I um, tend to edit quite a lot as I go, which is not what I would advise people to do, by the way. <laughs> do as the I thing, say, not as I do, yes. <laughs> the thing is quite sort of uh, solid usually, but in the first case, in the first book I actually rewrote the last, perhaps the last third of the book. Right. At that stage it changed the ending completely. Right. Yeah. Okay. Does it um, just wasn't working the for editor, you. The editor, actually. Oh, okay. So she she said she you know she didn't think <laughs> it was any good, and so I fixed it right up. You obviously fixed it right up, given that it's being <laughs> shortlisted for awards. <laughs> I know, I know. So I really appreciate a good editor. There's nothing like it. So do you? Um, are you still writing picture books as well? I'm not working on any at the moment, but I've written a few. In right. The past, okay. Yeah. And how do you approach that process? Is that different like how I mean where do most people go wrong when they try to write a picture book oh um, I think that uh, for people who are just writing the text uh, the things that they might do wrong are sometimes they put too many ideas into it a picture book is really quite a simple structure mm -hmm. and the best advice I've heard about writing a picture book is it should be about one thing or one aspect of a thing and right. I think that beginners often try and just do too much right you really want one clear storyline on one theme. The best picture books are really quite simple. But, of course, the difficulty is to get that simple. It often has to be very complicated to start with and then you need to edit it down. Right. So is that, how you, is that how you recommend people work, like write that's, that's the complicated people, story and then work it out from there? That's how a lot of people do work. Yeah. And um, I think it, it's effective, but I think you have to be quite tough on yourself when it comes to the editing. Right. And that's where I think a lot of people fall down is you, you know, fall in love with your complicated ideas. <laughs> and you need sometimes to step back and look at it with a hard head and say, no, the story's about this. And so all these things that are not this probably don't live in the story. So as a writer-illustrator, when you're writing a picture book, you've probably got in your head space for the pictures. Am I right? Yes. And I think when you write and illustrate, quite often you work on them together. Right. But if you're just writing, you always have to be thinking about the pictures because the way a picture book works is the text and the pictures tell the story together. So and you have so to leave space in the text for the pictures? Is that you how it do. works? You do. You do. Like you would never describe what your character looks like because the picture is going to do that so much better than your words could because there's the character. Right. But also you need, like sometimes in picture books, the joke can be in the pictures. Like you can imagine a book where the text goes, you know, uh, Jill was always a really good little girl and then the picture has Jill smashing the house up. And that's the, how humour can really work in picture books. So if you're writing the text, you always have to be thinking of how the pictures can work with your story. So when you submit, say I am just writing a picture book on my own with, without necessarily, like I'm only the author without being the author illustrator, mm -hmm. how do I... How do I submit it with that, you know, like I intend that the picture will tell the joke? Well, if it's like that and you need to know what's in the picture to get how the book will work, um, people would advise you include an illustrator note. 
oh, in right. your text. So yep. you put it in italics, you say illustrator note in, in brackets. But you would only do that if in that situation where without that happening in the picture, the story doesn't make sense. Right, okay. Otherwise your, the story needs to tell the story. That's right. And yep. the, you need to give the illustrator space to do what they would like with the scenery and everything. You can't say, I want it to look like my holiday house. Because, you know, the illustrator may have a completely different idea of how it all looks. And they're a creative person who needs their space as well. Uh, it's so very, it's a very creative the, process, the whole thing, isn't it? Yeah, it's, 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 it's an interesting process, I think. And I, I really admire the writers who write picture books well because they're giving their story into the hands of another person sort of entirely. Mm. Or I think it might be a bit like writing a movie, not that I've ever written a movie, but... It's famous, isn't it, how the writer works and then the story is taken off by the mm. you know, producer and the director and everyone and changed all about. It's a bit like that. You sort of yeah. you write the picture book and then your story is taken off by the designer and the illustrator and the editor and the And then everyone you just else. have to hope. Hope that it comes out <laughs> well. And a lot of people are um charmed by the results, quite different from what they imagined sometimes. Yeah, yeah. But okay. so much better than they imagined sometimes. Okay. So um what do you think then is the key to writing a good children's book, like for either picture book or sort of, you know, junior novel, so to speak? Well, in case of a junior novel, um, I'd say you, you do, you've got to hold the children's interest, really. I'd say action and plot. You really need stuff to happen. Yeah. And you need stuff to happen in every scene. Yeah. And you have to have a main character that the children can relate to. Right. In the case of a picture book, You've really, you've got to be child-centred, write about something that kids are interested in or would be interested in, but you also have to keep a little eye, I think, on the adults for picture books because picture books are read by adults to children yep. on the whole. Yep. So whereas you're writing for the older children, the kids are reading it themselves, yep. you're writing straight for them. But with a picture book, there's no harm in keeping a little eye on your adult reader as well, I think. So do you have all those things in your head when you sit down to write? Because that gets kind of crowded in there, doesn't it? <laughs> it's different writing for kids than writing for adults because when you're writing for adults, not that I do it, but I assume you write for yourself. Yeah, you're writing but, for peers, Or people like you. you. Yeah. 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 Whereas when you're writing for kids, you're sort of writing for them. And I think that um, one of the most useful things is to sort of channel your own childhood a bit. Yeah. So what if you can remember what it was really like when you were eight or whatever yeah. and write for that eight-year-old. Yeah. Not write for some sweet little child who you, you see but write for someone who you really feel like. So you're not you just know. writing for children, you're kind of writing for a child, so to speak. Yeah, or writing for yourself when you were a child, that kind of feeling, yeah. I think, because otherwise you think, oh, they're little kids, they, they're happy with anything. Yeah, they no. won't understand if I... I can't work out the logic of the scene I'm working on right now, but it doesn't matter because they're only kids. Oh, okay. See, that attitude won't help. Won't wash. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> okay. You've got to say, no, this is important. I want this to be, you know, as good as I can make it. Respect uh, your reader, I suppose. Yeah. So just going back uh, one step slightly, how, how long does it actually take for a picture book to go from an idea to a finished product? It, is it a long it, process? It's a long process. Okay. <laughs> Um, so the writer, generally the writer would write the text and then send it off to the publisher and say they accepted it straight away, like they read it and straight away accepted it. That still is a few months, that bit. Yeah. And then they start looking for an illustrator 
And say you're a first-time writer, they might want a really good, famous illustrator to illustrate your book because one of the names often needs to sell the book. Right, yeah. But that person might be busy for the next 18 months. Oh. So they book them up. 18 months past, they do the illustrations. This is quite typical. Wow. And then they might take three or four months to do the illustrations or more. And then the book has to go off to be printed and then bound and then distributed. So I'd say two years would be not unusual. Okay. So it's not what you call a quick turnaround. It's really not. I mean, <laughs> the exceptions. But, I mean, I illustrated a book. I finished the illustrations in the middle of last year and that book is out in May right this year so that's a year between me sending the artwork off and the book coming out even there yeah because they're quite big productions aren't they they're quite you know they're, they, they're usually they beautifully produced and lavish expensive to mm. make and then sometimes the publisher might say bring out two picture books a month or whatever they do yeah and so then your book will just be scheduled in the next gap and the next gap might be you know, months away. So what do you think it is that makes some picture books go off, like go mad? Like I'm thinking of um, uh, probably last year's was The Day the Crayons Quit with oh, Oliver Jeffers, funny. which was just a great book um, on an adult level as well as a kid level. Um, but what, you know, like what, you know there's, there's always a standout. There's your Gruffalo or there's your, you know, there's, there's a random one that becomes the classic of the generation. Oh. Like what is it that makes that oh. happen? If only we knew. If we knew, I know. <laughs> and I'm sure all the publishers would love. I mean, a lot of those books are do that thing of being good for adults and children. They've yeah. got a little eye on the adults. Yeah. There's a lot of humour in the really big books. I think some of them are very funny. Yes. Um, but not all. No. <laughs> Obviously, the pictures and the text have to work really closely together to tell yeah. the story. Yeah. Um, now, if we knew the thing, I mean, there's so many brilliant books that don't do that. Yeah. You look at them and think that's amazing. Yeah, why didn't so, it work? Or why didn't it sell is really the point, isn't it? And that, yeah. there's so many things that can affect a book sales, which right, are well, quite separate from how good the book from is. From the quality of the book. Which yeah. brings me neatly to my next question. Thank you for that lovely segue. Um, <laughs> let's talk about, you know, author platforms and profiles. As far as children's authors go, like what, do you, what, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, you know, do, do you need to put a lot of work into the profile and the platform if you're writing for children? It depends on the age of your readers, I really think. Mm -hmm. If you're writing for the younger children or even up to the age I'm writing for, which is sort of 12-ish, yeah. um, it's the website that's important. Most of those little kids are not on Facebook. Okay. Um, although their mums might be. Yeah. But um, I, I find that when a book comes out, the hits on my website go up quite a lot. Right. And um, I think that's where people go to find their information. Okay. For older children, like if you're writing YA, it's a bit different because you, you, know, you might have to go on Instagram and Facebook and really properly interact. I get quite a lot of emails from my readers. Do you? Now, well, I never used to when I did picture books because um, presumably yeah, they're, they're, <laughs> they're like two-year-olds. But mm -hmm. um, now I'm running for nine, ten, eleven-year-olds. Yeah, they send me emails quite often. Okay, so Usually they with, uh, points they'd like they'd like me, for, you know, to address problems I have with my story. You know? Oh, right. great! <laughs> <laughs> One of them emailed me the other day and asked me if I've ever tasted treacle. Oh, there's treacle, there's treacle in my story yeah. mentioned, and what does it taste like? I think right. it's lovely. <laughs> Love that. <laughs> So what then do you, like, how do you um, set up your, like, what do you think about when you're setting up your author website with that in mind? Like, if knowing that 
that that's what happens, that kids will come to your website when your books come out? Well, I suppose I, I probably should do a bit better than I do, actually. Um, I, I think it would be good. I've been thinking recently it would be good to have a page for the book, you know, right. so something about the actual book, whereas at the moment it's just sort of a bio list of books yep. <laughs> and my um, contact details. Right. So, yeah, I, I, I could probably do better than I do. No so will we be looking that. for witheringbyc.com at some point? I wonder if that's not a bad idea. Well, I, you know. I'm, I'm not very uh, good online, to tell you the truth. Okay. So what kind of stuff do you do in the way of promotion? Are you doing a lot of school talks? Are you Because that's sort of part of the life of a children's author in some ways, isn't it? It can be. A lot of people do heaps of school talks. I know someone who did 300 last year. 300? Yeah, it's more talks than school days. Wow, that's impressive. It is, isn't it? Yes. I don't do. I, don't, I do much less than that. Okay. <laughs> do, do you enjoy few. them? I don't mind them. They're quite um, tiring, actually. Yes. I like meeting the kids, obviously. Yes. And um, I've got much better at them than I used to be. When you start, they can be a bit intimidating and frightening. Yes. Um, because you go into the strange school and you get given this sort of unruly class who perhaps don't even know who you are. Yes. And you've got to sort of engage them. As, uh, you do get skills over the years from doing them, definitely. What do you think are the kind of skills that you need for that sort of work? Because like, I, I think it comes as a surprise to children's authors that that is even a thing if you've never done it before <laughs> I know I know it just seems funny that it's just so different from the skills you actually have as a writer yes like they're completely other skills um uh, some people don't do any it's not essential yes at all um you need to be able to I think what actually to tell you the truth I think the most useful thing is to put together a presentation that's really solid right and that you know works and you probably will do a few on your way to working out what that is. And then you can... I mean, the thing about school talks is you don't need to do lots of different things each time. You can pretty much do similar things each time, maybe vary it a little bit. Yeah. And so you work out what works and just, you know, that'll give you a lot more confidence and then you can, you know, be a bit more relaxed about them. So it's like anything, prepare yourself and know what you're talking about. Oh, goodness, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Um, all right. Well, then let's uh, finish up there. Let, uh, you've, you've obviously, you teach a lot of students uh, through the Australian Writers' Centre courses and various other things that you do. Yes. So what are your top three tips for would-be children's authors? Like you're writing a lot of different types of books for children. What are your top three tips? Hit me. Um, <laughs> Come on. I'd, I'd say first is that you have to be quite determined. You have to want it. I have a lot of students who say they don't have time to write. And, I mean, that's fine. Everyone has many things in their life. So they come to but, do the course, but they don't have time to write? Well, I think it's like it's a choice. You, you can choose to make time. It actually doesn't matter how busy your life is, and it might be incredibly busy, like unbelievably busy. But if you can't squeeze 10 minutes into the day, mm. you know, you just don't want it enough mm. is what I would say. Like you're making choices. You're choosing to, I don't know, feed your children or write your novel. Yes. And, Maybe in that case you probably should. You probably choose but... the children at that point, so. <laughs> <laughs> even if it's only baked beans. <laughs> but I had a student who would text her novel to herself while she's working as a waitress in her little breaks. Oh right. And you know, at the end of the day, collect these texts together and write another paragraph. Wow. So you need to be a little bit. Yeah, you have to want it and you have to be determined. That'll be my first thought. Um, try and write every day. Is it's really good advice actually. It do you write help. every day? 
I try to. Right. I, I'm at the moment. I don't always, but mm-hmm. I, right now I am. Right. And it does help because you sort of come up against the same problem and eventually you will solve it, mm-hmm. eventually, if you keep trying. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's two. And I suppose my third one is don't give up. People get very dejected by rejections from publishers. And we've all had lots. Even really well-known writers get rejected. Mm. And it's really important to see that as what it is, which is that your book doesn't suit them right at the moment or it's not something they can see a way of selling right at the moment. It doesn't mean you're a terrible person. It doesn't mean you're not a good writer. So try not to get discouraged by that stuff, but, you know, just keep trying to improve and... Because it's extraordinarily competitive, isn't it, children's fiction? It really is, and actually picture books is one of the toughest ones because there are very few first-time writers get published each year, but each year some do. Right. And I've heard um, editors who read through the slush pile saying they would love to find treasure in there, like they're genuinely looking. How many many submissions do you reckon they get on an average, like one publisher on an average basis in the picture book division? Hundreds. Hundreds. Because they're so short, people think they're easy to write, and so they just whip them out and send them off. Right. But of those hundreds, um, even just doing a little course would put you, I reckon, in the top 10% because already you're producing something that could be a picture book text. Right. The right number of words, it's presented in the right way. Yeah. You've given some thought to it. Yeah. And already you're giving yourself a much better chance Yeah. than some random person who's just scribbled on the back of an envelope with a crayon and posted it. Because <laughs> that happens often, I'm sure. <laughs> All right, Judith. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate you. you talking Thanks to so us. Much. And good luck in the Indie Book Awards. Thank you. It's exciting. Thank you very much. What a great interview. Thanks for doing that, Al. Oh, it's, look, it was great. And, you know, I, I love the, you know, the, the skills of illustrating and the skills of writing are so different and it's really interesting. Mm. I, I always admire uh, picture book authors who can do both because it's, oh. you know, it's an extraordinary skill. Makes you feel inadequate. Makes me oh, feel inadequate. Oh, you know, I bet she's got beautiful notebooks. Yes. I bet Judith's notebooks are extraordinary. So, you know, there's just another reason not to to ruin mine. <laughs> All right, what have you got for us on the web pick, app pick, Val's tech pick of the week? Our app pick for the week um, is also started its life off as a notebook. Oh. Yeah, as a real notebook called the 5-Minute Journal. And we'll put the link in the show notes, but you can just have a look at 5-Minute Journal. And um, the 5-Minute Journal is started off as an actual journal, as in a real, you know, uh notebook <laughs> and you're meant to write in it it's only meant to take five minutes every every day and it's um you do uh, it asks you some questions in the morning and asks you some questions in the evening and it's just meant to um you know go be for those people who who think oh i don't have time to write in a journal this is only going to take five minutes but i don't have the physical notebook because you know i was into instant gratification and instead mm. i bought the app so, yeah. yep. so the app is just the iPhone or whatever Android version of, uh, of the journal. And in the questions in the morning, it says, uh, you think of three things. I am grateful for one, two, three things. Um, and that's fine. And, you know, I do that and that's enjoyable. But the bit I like the best is the next question, which is what would make today great? And mm-hmm. you're forced to think of three things 
that would make today great. And for some, for me, it's sometimes I'll finish writing that article or finish um, writing that chapter or go for a workout or whatever. So you pick your top. You're forced to pick only three things because often when we have a to-do list, it's just really long. Uh-huh. And but if you're forced to pick those three things, when you get to the end of the day, you. Um, uh, if you've done those three things, you feel really good about yourself. Oh, so it works. Yeah, I think so because at the end of the day then, before you go to bed, it asks you um, some other questions. But the one I like best is list three amazing things that happened today. And it makes you take stock and realise, for me anyway, well, did I achieve the three things that I would make today great? Or, or also did other things happen that made today great? So it sounds really simple and it is only five minutes, but I think it's really a useful tool for productivity actually. Is there, does it have space in there for you to like just write stuff? Or do you have to follow the questions? You, uh, in the app, there isn't, but mm. in the actual paper journal, it's a beautiful journal. There's, um, you know, there's obviously other bits that you can write, there's space that you can write um, mm. other notes and stuff like that. But it's not got lots of blank pages where you write a, a whole heap of stuff because the whole point is it, it's meant to stick to five minutes. Mm. Mm. Okay, interesting. So, there you go. That's mm. my app pick for the week. I've been doing it for about two months now. Have you? And do you get, how do you feel, like, have you been doing it every day? Like, do you get, like, pressure if you don't do it? Does yeah. it start beeping at you and stuff? Uh, it has, sends you a reminder, a notification, mm-hmm. and um, that's really useful because I noticed that when I changed my phone over, I didn't um, enable the notification, so I did slip a little bit. So I reckon out of the last two months, I have done it 95% of the time, which is still pretty high. That's better than your seven-minute workout. Yeah. <laughs> So obviously journaling, <laughs> journaling is more your thing. Yeah, We're learning a lot about you, Valerie. Now, that, this has been quite an eye-opening podcast. <laughs> oh, okay, so what's our working writer's tip this week? I've just got one tip this week okay. and it's just randomly because of um, various things that I've read during the week and various things that I, I've been doing. Um, and it's this. Are you ready? Yes. This would be my number one tip for every freelance journalist in the whole world. Read the brief. Okay. <laughs> Read the brief because I can't tell you how important it is. Um, and the reason that I'm saying this is because I, I've been, you know, marking things and I've been doing various things for other people and editors go to trouble to send you a brief, yep. um, which may be short, maybe one paragraph, maybe like some some briefs that I've received in my time have been two pages long mm-hmm. and that may be, called, may, may be over-briefing. Mm-hmm. But... You need to read it to understand what the editor wants from you, not what you think the editor wants from you, not your idea of what the story might be, but the actual, this is what we want. It needs to cover this, it needs to do this, and you need to speak to three people and we need to be this. Because I just um, have been, like, as I said, I've been doing some different projects and the brief goes out and then I get 14 different variations on the brief and Mm -hmm. I can't understand why and my only thinking is that people are not reading what's being sent to them. They might quickly glance over it when they first get it and then they go off and do their thing and then it comes back to me and it's not at all what I was wanting. Yeah, not more frustrating. No, and it is, from an editor's perspective, it is incredibly frustrating. So um, that's my number one tip. Please read the brief. Would you, have, have you ever had an experience like that where, you know, you go to the trouble of putting a brief together and then you, it seems to be completely ignored? Oh drives me bonkers yeah absolutely and I, yeah. I and I uh I do have a tendency to overbrief. <laughs> so, yes you are very good at overbriefing <laughs> that has to be said 
we know exactly what Valerie wants. Yeah, so yep. I have a tendency to overbrief. However, I I think that stemmed from the fact that I had went through a period where I was writing shorter briefs and people just weren't even following it. Mm. You know, people weren't um, weren't reading it or they weren't understanding it. So I thought, I'm just going to make it so explicit <laughs> that there is no there is, you know no chance that they're not going to um, understand what I want. So yeah, that's definitely happened to me. And also, I've had writers come to me saying, you know, I've sent it. I, I need your advice because I've sent my article to the editor, and even though she originally agreed to it, now she's rejecting it. Can you tell me why? And I always say, send me the brief, and mm. I read the brief, mm. and it's not what they've written. And I go, well, no. look, you have not written what you promised. It's as no. simple as that. And and it's a certain thing of like I, I know people do say to me, oh, but you know, it's my story. It's got my name on it, and I, you know, I have to be, <laughs> I have to be true to my. To my creative whatever, mm. um, which is all good, but do it within the brief yeah. because, you know, it's like the editor knows what the magazine is about better than you do and you are writing for the publication. Yeah. It's it's If you want to write for yourself, get a blog yeah. or They're write a novel you, so or what whatever. Mm. Write what they want. Yeah, read mm. the brief. That's it. That's my number one tip for the week. Absolutely. And you've got lots of other tips as well uh, in your newsletter. I do have lots of tips in my newsletter. Um, yes, I do lots of different things Where in my newsletter. You can sign up at alison.com forward slash newsletter. Not alison.com. Oh, no, you're right. <laughs> alisontate.com. Oh, Alison. Wouldn't it be great okay. if you could have alison.com? Oh, I'm not Kylie, so I can't really... <laughs> I don't think I or Madonna. I don't think I'm at the point where you know people are just going to know me by one name. So alisontate.com forward slash newsletter, and I only send it out once a month. So I promise not to spam you. Yes, it's a great. And newsletter. what about you, Valerie? What are you doing? Oh, What's, where can we find you this month? Well, um, well, you can find me obviously at writercenter.com.au. My personal blogs at valeriecoo.com but I'm just looking as we speak actually at this pile of newspapers right behind me I need to do a bit of a clean up because one of the things that I love doing every weekend is getting the weekend papers Mm -hmm. and you know you sit there with your coffee and your whatever your croissant or something and I just love pouring over them seeing the number of bylines that there are in the weekend papers and um, I'm particularly encouraged I was speaking to one of our graduates from the Australian Writers Centre recently and um, he, he's just he he has a day he's, he has a day job, but he loves travel, and he travels you know five times a year. He's the sort that will make sure that all of his days of annual leave are really carefully um, you know placed during the year so he can maximise his travel. Uh, and he's done that forever. He's just a great traveller. But one of the things he does now is that every single trip that he does, he ends up with four or five paid articles. Oh, fantastic. Travel articles, yes. Clever. Clever. So basically his trips are... Paying for his trips. Yeah, paid for, Mm. which is awesome. So Mm. if anyone, you know, some people think you need to quit what you're doing now to become a travel writer, Mm. but... You don't. You can, you know, uh, there's another one of our students who works in a school and so she only travels during school holidays but she she does all of her travel articles on school holidays. So that's something I think that, um, that, that makes me happy because these people are, you know, they may not actually be changing careers but they're, they're reaping the benefits of, um, of all their travel writing. Mm, they're making the most of it. Absolutely. So if anyone's interested in travel writing, check out um, writercenter.com.au and look for travel writing. 
Mm, fantastic. What's happening this week for you until we speak next? Uh, well, apart from, you know, waiting for my books to arrive, I'm just, I'm really busy. I'm just working. I've got a whole big lot of different things to do. So I'm, you know, working across a whole range of different things this week and um, trying to keep my head above water. Great. And you? Uh, this week is mentoring week or the start of mentoring. I am involved Ooh. in a project with Microsoft where I'm mentoring a um uh, a small business who won one of their competitions and they get me as a mentor as part of their prize. Fantastic. <laughs> Are you going to speak Latin to them, Valerie? I will not be speaking Latin to them. And um, a couple of other um, mentoring uh, things are starting as well. So they, they've all decided, everyone's decided they need mentoring in March, it seems. Well, so. well, that's mentoring month. Yeah, mentoring month. I like it. So... We cut that brings us to the end of our podcast this week. We hope you've enjoyed it. Thank you so much for all of your emails and your tweets and your feedback. We really appreciate it. We'd love to know where you're listening from if you want to tweet us. Um, I'm at, at Valerie Koo and Alison is at? At Al Tate, A-L-T-A-I-T. I think you should say goodbye to us in Latin, Valerie, just to really, you know, top us off. All right. So it's Wale. And people might say, oh, I thought it was Vale. It's not. (laughs) You pronounce the Vs as Ws and you actually pronounce the whole thing. So you don't say whale (laughs) or bale. (laughs) You say wale. So wale, everybody. And I say lorem ipsum. (laughs) Bye. Bye, everyone.